We hear a lot about how it's hard to get a job right out of college with a liberal arts degree. Employers are looking towards graduates who have studied pre-professional fields rather than the humanities. So is it actually hard to get a job with a liberal arts degree? And what's the value of it? Good morning. I'm Chris Williams, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations. Today on the show, we are talking about the value of liberal arts education. As the cost of education rises, more and more students are in debt and might be asking themselves, is it worth it? First, we'll talk to Scott Samuelson. He's the author of The Deepest Human Life, an introduction to philosophy for everyone. He teaches at a community college in Iowa, and we talked about his piece in The Atlantic called Why I Teach Plato to Plumbers. The article you wrote for The Atlantic is called Why I Teach Plato to Plumbers, but you also say that you teach Plato to nurses' aides, soldiers, ex-cons, preschool music teachers, janitors, Sudanese refugees, prospective wind turbine technicians, and any number of other students who feel like they need a diploma as an entry ticket to our economic carnival. And I'm quoting from your piece there. So can you talk about the value of teaching a wide variety of students? The students that I've just mentioned, I mean, behind every one of those, you know, prospective wind turbine technicians, uh, ex-cons, et cetera, I mean, I have real faces in my mind, and uh, that part has been what I love most about teaching at a community college is, you know, I, I have these people who bring a lot to the table when it comes to talking about philosophy. Of course, it's my duty to try to bring the philosophy to them in a way that, that they can see its value and they can... Uh, imagine actualizing it in their own lives. But but that's just been, to me, what's most wonderful. I mean, there are great things, obviously, about teaching your typical 18 to 22-year-old undergraduate student who can be more or less clever. But but there's something really nice about teaching what we sometimes call non-traditional students as well, those because they bring so much more, they have so much more life experience. And, uh, and it's nice to bring them into the fold with the other undergraduates. Part of that also has to do with it's possible that they want to be there more rather than an 18-year-old who's an undergrad who might be taking the class as a requirement. You know, someone who's older might be taking it more out of interest. Would you agree with that? Yeah, oh, for sure. And and a lot of them as well, in particular with philosophy, can come to the issues with very burning questions on their minds. For instance, you know, I was teaching the moral philosophy of Immanuel Kant, where one of the things he argues is is that the moral worth of an action is properly found in, in the motives behind the action and not in the consequences. Well, I'm teaching this to, to this middle-aged lady who happened to be a mother, and she had authorized for her son at some point a risky surgery that had led to his, uh, inadvertently led to his death. So for her, coming to a question like, where does the moral worth of an action lie in the motives or the consequences, you know, it wasn't just a kind of an interesting thing to kind of debate about, but uh, something that had a burning need. <laughs> she had a burning need to answer that question. Or soldiers who have gone off and, and, and fought and, and done things that are troubling to them. It's nice for them to have that space where they can come in and talk about it, not necessarily in a, you know, a psychotherapeutic way, but in a way where they're just dealing with the big issues that they have on their minds. Is this why you began to teach at a community college to sort of reach these types of people? I, I wish I could say that that was true. The main reason was, was that I, I, my, I, all of a sudden my, my wife was pregnant and I really desperately needed health insurance. 
uh, and and some way to put food on the table. So uh, that's what originally got me teaching at a community college. But what I found there was uh, something that made me want to stay there, and that I, that I really loved connecting philosophy. You know, to to I guess you could say ordinary people's lives. Though I always think of ordinary as just a word we use to describe extraordinary people whose names aren't very well known. How can philosophy, Plato, or kind of anything, how can that be valuable to so many different types of people? Is it inherent within the material itself, or is it something that you found you needed to sort of tailor to in the way you teach? Most people have a kind of philosophical journey in them. Let me put it this way. I've understood philosophy better in part by having to teach it to people who you know, aren't necessarily going to be academic specialists. Because, you know, the great philosophers, they were, they were people too, and they had the same kinds of issues that, that, that everyone else has. They had to face death and, you know, the loss of loved ones and ethical dilemmas and, and, and questions about how to live their lives. I don't know. In other words, I don't see them as being quite so lofty as we sometimes make them out to be. Of course, they are great figures, and what makes them great is they are able to articulate things so powerfully for us. But at the same time, I feel like they're dealing with the stuff we're all dealing with. And so whenever I can remember that in trying to understand the philosophers, that usually gives me a bridge to connect it to people's lives. And like I said, it's, it's actually my students have helped me to understand philosophy better in that regard. So your piece is really about the reason that everyone should study the humanities and liberal arts. And, and you say in the piece that we should strive to be a society of free people, not simply one of well-compensated managers and employees. Can you just expand on that thought for me? Yeah. I mean, what I try to get at in that piece, I, well, first I try to remind people of the traditional place of the liberal arts in society. I mean, when we think of this classically, if we're thinking of ancient Greece or ancient Rome or you know the British Empire in this heyday, the study of the liberal arts was really crucial for an upper class, and for a couple reasons. One, so that they can enjoy the kind of higher goods of human life. They had the leisure time to do so, and it was befitting of their station. And they also, of course, had to think for themselves, because they were the people who actually shaped society, um, shaped politics, shaped the economy. Uh, I mean, I'm a fairly patriotic American, and we have sort of two choices. Either we're going to return to some version of that old model where rich people get to have a liberal arts education where they can enjoy the higher goods of human life and think for themselves and become shaping members of society and everyone else becomes the employee who's supposed to fit into some uh, big corporate model. Or we can try to give as many people as we can a shot at the goods of an education befitting our, our freedom so that people can have the ability to develop their ability to think for themselves, but also go on the kind of philosophical adventures that I see are really uh, available to, to all of us, that it's not just the, the clever or the rich who, who have that in them. So I, I guess I, I see the value of a liberal arts education in a way is it helps people to really integrate into a real self to learn the hard art of thinking for ourselves, understanding where our ideas come from, learning how things are expressed. When we have that integration of the self, we're able to perform really better in all walks of life. I see this as something that needs to be open as wide as possible, not as something that, that is the privilege of the elite few. Things are changing, but you still see it as a class issue or... Is it still hard for some people to access this kind of education? I, I think it's getting harder to do so. I mean, I guess my worry is is that education gets increasingly talked about in purely economic commodified terms, and 
also at the same time, it becomes more and more expensive. And so the idea is that students have to go into deep debt in order to get an education, and then that gives them the anxiety that, well, they immediately need to somehow start paying off that debt, and uh, and then education gets thought of in, in just totally economic terms. And I, I just don't think that that's a good way of thinking of, of education at all, even on its own terms. When we think of in other words, even if you just, even if all you wanted was to make sure that we had a vibrant, healthy American economy, I still don't think that it would be a good idea to 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 think of education purely as a preparation for it. You've got to have that integration of the self that allows you to to be the kind of innovator or or, or sort of person whose job isn't just going to be downloaded or offshored. But anyway, my I guess my overall point is I do think it's getting harder for students uh, to to get that education, particularly if they're poor or in the middle class. It's just so expensive that they, 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 see, uh, some, they want to see some kind of shortcut to, to wealth rather than education as the development of the liberal arts. And that's, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of the you know, sort of online think pieces, they're about, oh, well, if you have a liberal arts degree and you majored in English, then you have the critical thinking skills for this job. You can be this thing. Right. You can make a lot of money still. And it's not really about what you're saying here is, you know, about developing the self, you know. Yeah, I, I don't I'm, – I'm a little worried even from the perspective of a rhetorical pitch that that's just not going to work to sell the liberal arts. Is, uh, the way I put it is, you know, it's going to be the rare student who reads Aristotle's metaphysics and thinks, wow, this is really going to pay dividends at IBM. I think it does pay dividends at IBM in some sense. In fact, I wrote that in a, in a piece, in uh, an op-ed I wrote for the Wall Street Journal, and I, did, and I immediately got a letter back from a guy who did study Aristotle and did go on to work at IBM as some low-level functionary but quickly rose through the ranks and attributed it to Aristotle and his study of uh, Aristotle's ability to think clearly. But my point is, is, yeah, I just don't think that that's the reason why we do it, and, and I don't think it's going to be a very successful sales pitch overall for the liberal arts. Uh, I'd much prefer us think about it in terms of, like I said, ideas of freedom, the intrinsic value of it, uh, the idea of citizenship, uh, um, and, and by citizenship, not just, I don't just mean, you know, able to cast a vote, but able to be a kind of shaping member of society. Your book, correct me if I'm wrong, it's all about sort of bringing philosophy down to, you know, the importance for everyone, basically. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about why, did you decide to write that after teaching a community college and sort of realizing that you can help all different kinds of people or, you know, where did that idea come from? The book is called The Deepest Human Life, and the subtitle is An Introduction to Philosophy for Everyone. The, the subtitle is meant to be a little bit, or have a little bit of a subversive meaning. Uh, on the one hand, of course, I mean it's an introduction to philosophy for non-specialists uh, that anyone hopefully can access. But it's, 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 it's also meant to be everyone, in, in other words, including academics and philosophers, as a, they sometimes need to be reintroduced to what philosophy is all about as well, or at least to remember its central place in human life. In the book, I, I try to relate the ideas of the great philosophers to stories of, for instance, students of mine or myself or, or, or other, like I said, ordinary people. Is it frustrating to sort of have to almost justify the value of philosophy for everyone? Do you feel like people don't realize how universal it can be? Is it 
frustrating. I guess I don't necessarily feel too frustrated, though. I, of course, wish that more people saw its value. Um, uh, I mean, you know, there's never been a society that just ran and embraced all of its philosophers and begged them to be a central part of, of everyone's life. But I do think that the more that we do embrace philosophy, the, the, the better off we're going to be. So I'm happy to try to make the case. It doesn't frustrate me overly much, but but uh, I, it does frustrate me, I guess, with academics. I, um, you know, there are lots of great professors of philosophy throughout the country who are doing really wonderful work, but there are plenty who do seem to me to be a little to have lost their way a little bit. You know, I, I sometimes say there are uh, occasionally people on whom the value of philosophy is lost, and unfortunately, some of them have found jobs teaching philosophy. Maybe sum up one of the stories from the book, something that stands out to you. One of the stories that really hits me hard is some people may know the famous story about Socrates going to, the well, his friend went to the Delphic Oracle, and the Oracle said that no one was wiser than Socrates. When Socrates heard this, he was in disbelief because he, didn't, he felt like he didn't have any wisdom. He went around and questioned the luminaries of Athens, uh, uh, only to find that he was indeed the wisest, wisest because he knew he knew nothing. And out of this comes the idea that the examined life is the, the most worthwhile life uh, to live. Well, I had a, a student who was a nurse's aide. I'm, it, this is, for instance, one of those faces that I think of when, when I say nurse's aide in my article. Um, and she, uh, uh, we had talked about the purpose of the hospital, and I had presented it in kind of a critical manner, criticizing some of the main ideas that are often given. Well, since she actually worked in a hospital, she wanted to uh, explore this idea of what a hospital is for in more detail. So she lit on the idea all by herself of, of going into the hospital and going on a kind of Socratic journey where she would question the doctors, the nurses, the administrators, the patients about the purpose of the hospital, but she would bring the kind of criticism that, that she had learned to bear on what they had to say. And so she goes through this, and what she finds is almost exactly what Socrates finds, that, that she's shocked that so many people hadn't really given much thought to why they were there in the hospital. Um, and that the answers that they gave were often the kind of pat answers that were she, had, she could recognize as partial answers to the real purpose. So it led her on a kind of internal journey to think about what she really thought was the value and worth of being at a hospital. Um, and she eventually came to the idea, uh, the way she put it was, she thought the purpose of a hospital was to be there for people, to be there when they're suffering, to be there when they're grieving, to be there when they're in pain. In a way, she said the point of the hospital was care, uh, and she thought the nurses did that best. So she marvelously concluded that, that uh, doctors were there to help the nurses. But anyway, the point being that after having gone through that journey, she really came to this idea that it would be better if everyone there really did undergo a kind of serious examination of what the value and purpose of, 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 of their mission there was. I'm going to quote again from your piece, if that's okay. So you say, there are among future plumbers as many devotees of Plato as among the future wizards of Silicon Valley, and there are among nurses, aides, and soldiers as many important voices for our democracy as among doctors and business moguls. These people have a lot to say, and their opinion's valuable, but isn't it hard for them to sort of have a platform for that? Yeah, it is, for lots of reasons. I can't tell you how often I encounter students in the community college in particular, though I suppose this is a much broader phenomenon than just at the community college, where they feel 
in some ways powerless in society, or they feel like, you know, this game is rigged or that other people are in charge and that their voice, you know, if they were to speak up, their voice wouldn't be heard or wouldn't, wouldn't really count, uh, which I think is just terrible. I mean, and, and of course, part of that is sometimes a, um, a feeling, a lack of confidence on their abilities to to speak well and powerfully, and that's why the liberal study of the liberal arts can be helpful. It's uh, our task to try to empower those voices because... I mean that's that's the society that I believe in is 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 a democracy where where those voices count and 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 are important for how we see things. You know, education can sort of be the way to that empowerment. I, I think it's got to be one of the pieces. I suppose there are probably others, but to me, a, a liberal arts education, at least some of that, it has to be part of that because it does give you that ability to think clearly and speak clearly and, and, and feel the kind of confidence where you feel like you have a voice that can add to the greater conversation of our society. I don't think it's necessarily the only thing that we need to do, but I think that that's certainly one important piece of the puzzle. Thanks to Scott for joining me to talk about why the humanities matter. You can learn more about him on his website at scottsamuelsonauthor.com. This is Chris Williams on WFUV 90.7, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations. The humanities might be important for creating a better self, but what about getting a job? Is it hard to get employed? Will someone with a liberal arts degree make enough money to pay off their debt? To find out, I spoke to Ava Badowski, Fordham University's Associate Dean for Academic Programs in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also the chairperson of Fordham's Task Force on the Future of Liberal Education. Can you talk about that task force? Oh, sure. The task force was charged by the president of Fordham University. It has a kind of multiple level of charges. We're looking internally at the institution to see how we're doing with regard to the liberal arts, but we're also examining uh, the current crisis of the liberal arts and possible paths forward. You mentioned the current crisis of the liberal arts. So what is that? How would you categorize that? <laughs> um, a number of factors. Um, there is the economic crisis of 08 and the following years, which naturally made people wonder if a liberal education was, quote-unquote, worth it. It's certainly um, a costly education. Uh, there are uh, ways to get a degree that are less costly. Um, and so naturally the question of um, is this type of education worth it emerged. Uh, there's the student debt crisis, which I think was uh, you know, very, very loud a couple of years ago, especially last year when the student debt mark crossed the trillion dollars. Pressures from the federal government to reduce spending and the uh, reductions of spending, um, especially in the sciences, um, but obviously also affecting the humanities. Um, changing demographics, I think that's a big one and one that we don't hear as much about. In other words, students that traditionally ended up going to smaller liberal arts colleges um, are increasingly in the minority. So I think these are the, perhaps the major factors. Would you say that a liberal arts education is worth it, you know, other, <laughs> other than, you know, the inherent education itself, but the different factors and a lot of them you mentioned, you know, student debt, the rising cost of education, things like that. So, you know, what do you think? Do you think it's worth it? Without a doubt, strongly. You know, I, I, I once um, said to my colleague that I'm ready to get on a rooftop and shout from the rooftop that, um, that it is. I think the major reason why it is is that we're changing so fast and that, um, you know, we like to describe the current landscape as the new knowledge economy. 
information is is increasing at uh, an absolutely unprecedented rate. The Department of Labor, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is telling us that jobs of the future are jobs that don't have names yet. We're hearing from you know left and right that people are changing jobs very very fast. Um, so now the current rate apparently is um, four and a half years. Um, um, at one job, which means something like 15 to 20 jobs um, over the course of one's career if this trend holds. And that means that what we need most in the workforce is creativity, adaptability, flexibility, ability to learn, ability to change. And these are all things that I think liberal education is particularly good at training. Because if you imagine someone um, training for a particular technical field, we can be pretty sure that most of that information is going to be out of date by the time they graduate, and all of it certainly in 10 years' time. There's sort of this general attitude that if you have a liberal arts degree, it's harder to get a job. Is that accurate? Well, I'm going to throw some, some, some data at you. It may be initially more difficult, but long-term, um, the recent data that I've been looking at show that it's not. If you look at data for, say, humanities and social sciences versus pre-professional degrees and physical sciences, natural sciences, the differences are not as major or as staggering. So, for instance, immediate um, out-of-college employability and earnings are very similar, kind of within a couple of thousand dollars of each other. And then long-term career outcomes at what's called the peak earning ages of 56 to 60, earnings and employability for um, humanities and social sciences on the one hand and professional and pre-professional majors are almost exactly the same and actually with um, humanities and social sciences majors exceeding um, the others in terms of um, salary range by by, by a small fraction like $2,000, but nonetheless. So would you say that these skills are unique to people studying the liberal arts or just all college students in general, wouldn't someone who is in a pre-professional field, wouldn't that person also be able to sort of, you know, have a capacity to learn and, and reason and logical skills, things like that? In principle, it would seem that that should be the case. Liberal arts colleges are traditionally smaller. There is much more emphasis on interaction and active learning. There is an expectation and a practice of um, direct um, involvement of of the faculty and the availability of the faculty to to students um, outside of courses. More interaction, more emphasis on a kind of workshop atmosphere. And so I think that in principle, the same values and the same uh, skills are aimed at in any large university setting. Uh, But there is um, an important qualitative difference in the way that they are practiced and instilled and delivered. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, and you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but, you know, I feel like if an employer is looking at someone's resume or something, you know, they might look and say, oh, you know, this person majored in English. They can read Shakespeare, but what real-world skills do they have to bring to this work environment, you know? Is that sort of a thing that's happening amongst employers, or is that just a, a false mm-hmm. notion? Mm-hmm. Um, 
There's several things that I want to say in response to this. Um, one is that when you actually look at surveys of um, CEOs of, of um, HR departments and, say, you know, Google and companies like that, they routinely list skills that we would think as um, skills, sort of desirable skills, that are central to the liberal arts. Laszlo Bloch at Google in a recent New York Times uh, piece said that what he's looking for in potential employees of Google um, are leadership qualities, initiative, um, capacity to learn, great communication, great ability to collaborate, and ability to learn um, on the job, um, sort of be a self-starter. So these are kind of soft skills. Um, there's not a single technical skill. On the other hand, in actual sort of HR situations, um, I think what you're suggesting is actually the case. In other words, you know, you've, you've spent four years reading Shakespeare. Uh, what do you really know? And I think that's where, that's where exactly we're looking and trying to examine how we can, number one, equip our students, um, and especially this time students in the humanities, with an ability to articulate the skills that they actually do possess. Um, so instead of, um, for instance, talking about the canon of English literature or, you know, the swaths of history that they can um, they can examine or analyze, talk about the skills, the transferable skills, what I like to call the portable skills that they have gained in the process of studying Shakespeare or history or theology or whatever it is. And these include, for instance, um, very useful skills such as um, doing research, um, including Internet research, evaluating the quality of data and sources, um, drawing conclusions that are argumentatively valued and valid, um, working with other people in the process of arriving at these conclusions. Yeah, because I, I honestly feel like a lot of the things that would make someone good at a job are really hard to put on a resume. These are very hard to measure and articulate indeed, but uh, perhaps that's, you know, um, one upside um, of the trend towards um, outcomes measurement is that we now do think in terms of articulating um, these skills. So it used to be enough to say critical thinking skills, and now um, everyone has a smirk on their face when they, when they hear that phrase, and, and rightly so. Uh, what are critical thinking skills? You know, it runs the risk of being, you know, overstated. Yes. You hear critical thinking, leadership skills. Like, these are things that you hear all the time People for people applying to jobs or being interviewed for a job. Mm -hmm. And it sort, of, it, it sort of loses its meaning over time, and you kind of have to get in there and improve it rather than just say it, you know? I think these are things that are best measured um, over the scale of a lifetime rather than um, immediately out of college. I mean, we can hardly expect every 22-year-old to be the best leader, the best communicator, the best critical thinker. Right? So thinking uh, about long-term value, um, is this person going to continue learning? Is this person going to continue reading? Um, is, this person continue, is this person going to continue to contribute to the community? Um, that's, I think, one of the things that we all love about the millennials is that they really do think about the community. We've been talking about this sort of in terms of skills you can gain in order to become employed, which is, I think, you know, that's what a lot of students are thinking about. But from the other side of it, as an educator, what other aspects of 
a degree in the humanities, let's say, you know, what's the value of that outside of, you know, trying to get a job? An everyday look at the front page of the newspaper tells us about uh, continued conflicts with, uh, that have to do with religious values, political orientations. I think we prepare students to think about these things deeply, to really look at various sides of, of an issue, to not jump to conclusions, to seek information, to be open to others. Again, these are very hard to measure, uh, but I think a, a broad education in history, in literature, in religious traditions, in good argumentation is priceless preparation for the, for the modern world. You know, I always imagine uh, people in retirement uh, wondering what they're going to do in retirement. And uh, I have a feeling that our graduates are going to keep reading, learning, traveling, that these questions are going to persist with them. What would your advice be for a, a soon-to-graduate, <laughs> unemployed, worried, scared person right now? <laughs> Long term, a bachelor's degree is the best investment a person can make. And I think that despite the recent crisis, um, economic crisis and student debt crisis, it continues to be the best investment. It may take some time to find the right place immediately after graduation, but the long-term data continue to support that this is the right choice to make. This has been Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. You can hear our show every Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you've missed the show. They're all available to stream at WFUV.org and to download as a podcast. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for info on all our shows. Stay tuned. George Bodarki and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.